we're really at the ability now to be able to take things and give them an ability to do one thing. This idea of a collective consciousness and collective intelligence, is it possible? Yes, it is theoretically possible to allow these things to have a collective intelligence and that is artificially. It still is today though. The intelligence that is offered into a device is still, it's ring fenced by the intelligence of the person that developed it. So we have not gotten to the point yet. There has been some experimentation and there's been some people who have posited algorithms that can get to the point where we can, you know, it can learn in of itself, but it still only learns about the things that we teach it. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about making a better, brighter future for all of us. Every week, I invite you to learn with me and care a little bit more about specific issues so that together we can build a better world and a better future. Today, we're going to explore the Internet of Things, otherwise known as IOT, from the unique perspective of someone whose start in business came from the hard labor of running a cattle ranch. Rob Rastovich has been actively in technology for 30 years, from building e-commerce sites at what was the dawn of our present state of doing business in this way, using AWS and IoT, when things were, let's just say, in their infancy. ThingLogics, his company, was awarded the 2018 IoT Platforms Leadership Award. When he's not working on his role leading the Internet of Things, he can be found maintaining his cattle ranch and being a part of his community in Central Oregon. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Karina. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so nice to have you here. I also am from Southern Oregon, so it's been a while. I've yet to be up to Bend, but perhaps <laughs> one day soon you can show me what you do differently at that cattle ranch. No, absolutely. Absolutely. We'd love to have you anytime. So let's start off this conversation with a simple review of what the Internet of Things really is. So I guess most simply put, it's the ability to connect devices that typically wouldn't be connected. So the most common example is smart homes, right? Smart homes are pretty prevalent around. You can connect your thermostat, you can connect your garage door, you can have all these things talk amongst themselves and talk to you. The thermostat can tell the windows to tell the drapes to go up and down and the garage door can tell the lights to go on and off and things can talk to each other. Well, all those things only talk to each other is if they have the ability to send messages. So the internet of things is really managing messages and between devices and people. Is artificial intelligence involved with how they communicate? Absolutely. So that's kind of where ThingLogix got its start. So originally we had another company called Telemetry that was out in Denver, and we actually developed the ability to, you know, manage and ingest these messages. That company was ultimately acquired by AWS and is today what AWS refers to as the AWS IoT broker. And so that was kind of the first step. How do you get messages from one device to the other? Now taking and adding logic 
two things, ergo thing logics, is the ability to take artificial intelligence and put it onto these devices and make them smart enough to know not that not every time that they have to do something, but when they have to do something and when they need to talk to other things and when they need to translate data from one point to the other. So, artificial. so would this be called a narrow approach to artificial intelligence or is it broader? That's a good question. I would say we are pretty broad in the sense of we really talk about putting logic against anything. So I would say we have logic and intelligence that we put on against a farm. We have intelligence we put against a volcano, migrating geese, you know, smart UPSs, you name it. We have a very broad approach. The more specific stuff in terms of algorithms that get down to when and how you do things and whatnot, that would be kind of a case-by-case implementation. I guess the reason I ask is because I have an earlier interview where I spoke with Mo Gaudat, who used to be the chief business officer at Google X, and he wrote a book called Scary Smart, all about how artificial intelligence is really ultimately going to surpass the collective knowledge of humanity in relatively short order, the next 20, 30 years. And ultimately, it will learn from us, from our behaviors, and will either be really good for us or potentially pretty bad. So mm-hmm. I think some people misunderstand its involvement and in, in approach in something like a smart home concerning thoughts being along the lines of, oh, well, how much is it learning about me and what is it going to share with the universe, so to speak? And is that technology secure? So what would you have to say to that individual who might have some concern about these things? Well, you know, that's usually, you know, I get that question a lot is, am I creating Big Brother? And (laughs) have I been creating basically this monster that cannot be turned off? So with today's technology, that is not the case. And I do think we tend to extrapolate out to that point. We're really at the ability now to be able to take things and give them an ability to do one thing. This idea of a collective consciousness and collective intelligence, is it possible? Yes, it is theoretically possible to allow these things to have a collective intelligence and that is artificially. It still is today, though. The intelligence that is offered into a device is still it's ring fenced by the intelligence of the person that developed it so we have not got to the point yet there has been some experimentation and there's been some people who have posited algorithms that can get to the point where we can you know it can learn and of itself but it still only learns about the things that we teach it and the scary part to me is that and it's not unlike you know how we teach our children You know, you can have a child and that child kind of objectively comes into the world and is taught by its parents and its community and its society. It absorbs data, it learns behaviors, it does all those things. So you could actually say that that child is a product of its programmer, if you will, and it can grow up to be do good things and it can grow up to do less than optimal things. And intelligence and artificial intelligence, I don't think is much different than that. It's what you put into it and how that learning takes place. Today, the type of intelligence that we have and the compute power that we have is greater than it has ever been in the history of mankind. And so, yeah, could it go down that road? Yeah, it's possible. I don't see it in a practical sense as us being there right now, just for the sheer amount of data that we have to process. So let's talk about what you do specifically at ThingLogix. What is a sweet spot that you're the master of? 
So after the acquisition of our broker to Amazon, ThingLogic was actually born out of that to provide professional services around this technology. So essentially think about it like, and to use agriculture, which is near and dear to my heart, you have a sensor that sits out in the field and it measures moisture and it measures maybe nutrients of, you know, what's in the soil. And it just sends that data up, sends it 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 up. That's all it knows how to do. And that's all it can do. ThingLogic has to, or somebody or something has to come in and put context and, you know, around that thing. Okay, that thing is in the north field on the Rastovich farm, you know, in the southeast corner of the north field. And in there, we're going to plant potatoes. And it's connected to, you know, this water system and it has this nutrients available. So now we have to put the ability to, all right, we're going to send moisture from this pump. And we're going to send these types of nutrients because we know it's going to be potatoes in there and all of that kind of stuff that puts context around there and kind of makes an application, if you will, is what ThingLogix does. Very similar. Think about an e-commerce site. If you just had, I have a product and I have a widget and I have a web page for my widget. Okay, well, now we need to put an application around that. You need to be able to add the widget to the basket and you'd be able to need to accept the credit card and you need to send it to fulfillment and you need to be able to do all these other things around just the fact that has it. And that's really what ThingLogic does. We develop that framework and that ability to actually create a solution or an application, if you will, around devices. Well, that sounds like it's making it more accessible than to other device manufacturers, people who want to create something new or ultimately take the power of that tracking into their own hands. It does. And it's, you know, we're really kind of sit between the device manufacturer and kind of the business, you know, great example. I had a guy come to me one time and he said, uh, and this was in the early days, he wanted to build a new pool. He had a pool business where he, you know, cleaned pools and he says, I want to build a new website so people can go onto my website and they can schedule an appointment for repairs and they can order chemicals and, you know, we can do their payments and all that kind of stuff. And it seemed like a good idea. And he goes, well, I could increase my business. I said, well, I think we're thinking about that in the wrong way. In today's world, we're moving to a subscription economy and a mm -hmm. connected economy. I go, instead of spending your money on trying to get customers to come to your website, let's take and take a connected pool pump and install a connected pool pump that measures your chemicals and dispenses that and sends back diagnostics equipment. So now, instead of your customers having to go to your website and have to do something, your business model changes completely. You say, okay, well, I'm not going to charge you, you know, hundred bucks a month or whatever. And your chemicals are going to arrive automatically. We're going to come out and schedule maintenance preventatively because we know your pump is going to, you know, has a profile of a pump that might fail in, you know, two weeks instead of the day before the pool party. We're going to proactively work on these kinds of things instead of waiting for you to request it and then we respond and request a response. So ThingLogix has the ability to sit in the middle and build that solution so that device manufacturers like the pool pump manufacturer and the business, like the guy who's running around cleaning pools, can actually create a new business model. Well, it sounds to me like that would be incredibly powerful even for the last, or I guess by the time this airs, it'll be a few episodes ago. But I interviewed the CEO and founder of Delfast eBikes, mm. and they are collecting data all the time on the performance of their vehicles and can ultimately slurp that up into the cloud and then share it with the purchasers of their eBikes. 
They can even track where their bicycles are if mm. they've been subject to theft or something along those lines. And they can also track the temperature of batteries so that if there is a failure predicted, it can be addressed before a problem arises. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's a great example, being able to provide a solution. And all those little things, the, the battery, the bike, you know, all those manufacturers put that together and they came up with a business case that says, hey, let's put a solution together that didn't exist before. And those are, you know, technology like those, like Uber, those are technologies that didn't exist and couldn't have existed without a message-based back and forth type of architecture. Wow. Well, I would like to just know a little bit more about how being a cattle rancher prepared you for this life yeah. <laughs> and technology. Yeah, it's a good question. So I'm third generation rancher. So my ranch I live on, we're 102 years old. My grandfather founded the ranch in 1919. And so I always tell people, I don't know, it's, I'm a cattle rancher because I don't think I know how not to be a rancher. It's, it's kind of in my blood. <laughs> I grew up here. My father grew up here. I would say my grandfather and all my aunts and uncles grew up here as well. So that was kind of, you know, from day one, I was on the trajectory of being a rancher. The technology kind of came in, you know, I actually started off, went to school to do marketing. And when the internet kind of poked its head up and in the mid to late 90s, I caught the technology bug and that was <laughs> that was the crack cocaine i couldn't get enough of you know i, well, I mean you and everyone i went to high school with <laughs> in silicon valley i mean i was in cupertino right you know as that was erupting into yeah. something gigantic and for some reason i strayed from the industry i was one who said i want to work in something more naturally oriented and but yet every man i dated for a long time <laughs> yeah was a technologist. My husband works for Joby Aviation. Okay. So they're, you know, yeah. working in the VTOL space, vertical takeoff and landing. I'm still here in Northern California, which is a hotbed for all of that. So mm -hmm. technology surrounds me every single day and I get the appeal. I also am a marketer and I use a lot of these tools. I'm really marveling at the fact that our jobs have become so much more easy with these gifts that technology mm -hmm. has provided just because we can really get to know our customers better and differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are ways to create surveys or questionnaires that enable you to learn more about your customer base than you might ever have been able to in the past. And I'm sure you're going to tell me about more solutions. <laughs> well, we have a full bag of them, that's for sure. And we have, you know, once I got that bug, I couldn't stop it. And so the technology kind of grew out around that. And so, but I never gave up the ranching because it's a grounding place for me. So they work well together. So what kind of technology do you use specifically on the ranch? Well, we kind of use the ranch as kind of a proof of concept, you know, to do a POC. So we've done POCs around soil monitoring. What is a POC? A proof of concept. Okay. Thank you. So we've done proof of concepts around soil monitoring and fertigation. You know, so the ability to, when you irrigate to, you know, not just send water out, but to send nutrients out. In Oregon, as you know, industrial hemp was legal, became legal a few years ago. I put in hemp crops, but in 20 acres of hemp experimented at that time, Boston Dynamics had the dog spot, a robotic dog that could walk up and down the aisles and look for plants and do weeding. And, you know, because inside the hemp process, if you have a male plant gets inside your crop, it's really bad for it. So you got to constantly monitor for that. So explain with that. With the cattle, we start experimenting with smart corral systems. So, you know, mm. today 
the cow that goes to market is the slowest cow, the one you can catch easiest, right? <laughs> but really, that's probably not the most efficient way to manage a herd. So we're working on corral systems so that because all the cows have RFID tags. And so as they walk through, you know, we know which cow comes in and whatnot. But being able to simply do things like close a gate when you know that, okay, the cows are coming in, they're coming in for water, they come in for feed. And, you know, there's four or 500 cattle out there. And so as the one that you want comes in, you just kind of close the gate behind her. Yeah, you'll catch a few extras in the corral, but it's easier to sort one out of five than it is one out of 500. So being able to do smart corral systems that manage a herd and be able to, it makes it less stress on the animal, makes it safer for the handlers, those kinds of things. And then we've experimented a lot with, we actually spun up another company called Thermix AI around cold chain monitoring. So obviously when we have processed meat, we put it in the freezer and those freezers, you know, have tens of thousands of dollars worth of product in it. And if a freezer were to fail for some reason, we want to know that right away. Like if the temperature goes up one degree, I want to know immediately. So putting sensors in there to manage the freezers and manage that cold chain from the point of processing all the way to when we send it to our customers. This is something that my listeners may remember from an earlier episode when we interviewed Manik Suri of Therma. They manage specifically fixed refrigeration units, but you're talking about end-to-end as well, correct? Yeah, Collecting correct. data all along the way. Yeah, wow. correct. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking about a couple of things here. One is I visited a, what I would call a humanitarian style dairy farm up in Wisconsin at one point, and they had a technology where their cows, they all had RFID tags like you're talking about. They would choose when it was time to be milked. Mm. And so they would come into the building, literally walk through, they knew where to walk to go ahead and line up and be milked. And then they'd walk out of the building and every step of the way, these things are tagged. They know which cow came in at what time, how much milk they received. All of that is cataloged and ultimately preserved. And the cow walks out, less stress on the cow, less stress on overall workflow. The cows essentially know when it's time to be relieved of their milk. So they'd come in and be processed ultimately. And so I felt like that was such an interesting approach to doing this entire process less stressful, the data was all there and really felt like it was novel and would support, you know, people who might have chosen to stop drinking milk specifically for how often dairy cows are treated mm. to consider adding it back if they didn't have a sensitivity. Mm -hmm. I'm dairy sensitive, so I'm working to eliminate dairy from my diet, but you know, that's one primary reason for me anyway. Those dairy farms are amazing. I've had the opportunity to visit a couple here in Oregon that we're in the process of automating some of that stuff, but there's a special place in heaven. I'll tell you for dairy farmers because it's, <laughs> it's a lot it, of work. Oh my gosh. It's 4am and 4pm every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it's a lot of work what they do, but those cattle, they get used to it and they treat those animals. I mean, I always say the farmer is the original conservationist. I mean, there's no person that cares more, you know, nurtures more the land and the people and the animals on it than the farmers and are there exceptions yeah are there abuses of course but you know there is most of the ranchers and farmers that you'll meet they are or at least the ones that i i deal with around family farms and family ranchers mm -hmm. the amount of care and nurturing that goes into their animals and their land and making sure that it is viable not just for you know this season or next season but for generations 
Yeah. I mean, uh, what you're talking about, again, is not the concentrated animal farming operations, the CAFOs, right? Like, that's a Correct, completely different yeah. story. And mm -hmm. I think when you get to know your food sources, like, for instance, if I was to come to your farm and get cattle and get meat from your farm, you know, I'm talking to a specific rancher who's been doing this work on the same land for three generations, who's taken extra care and who I understand is even feeding mash from beer processing to your cows. Can yeah. you talk to us about this? Yeah, so our little town of Bend, Oregon, in the mid-90s was one of the very first towns that started doing microbrewing. And we have one of our largest brewers here is Deschutes Brewing. They distribute nationally, but we have on the order of magnitude, you know, 10 barrel is a pretty national, popular national brand. Boneyard's pretty national, popular national brand. So we have some large national brands that brew here. And they have a product, a byproduct of beer making that we call it a beer mash that they have to dispose of. And you can't, and it's just basically the grains and the wheats that go into making individual, you know, those proteins are kind of soaked out of that grain. And that's what gives you your beer, the flavor. And that's what makes an IPA an IPA and, you know, a blonde, a blonde and those kinds of things. And, but when they're done with that, that needs to go someplace and it can't go into the sewage system because it messes up the processing plants. You can't take it to the landfill because it's a wet product. So you have to do something. So we pick that up and we feed that to the cows. And then each of those brewers have little pubs in town. We sell the meat back to the pubs so that when you come into town and you have a burger and a beer, you're eating a burger raised on the beer that you're drinking. Then we does also impart a flavor into the meat. I'm just it curious. Does. It absolutely, it does. yeah, it absolutely does. There's a traditional grass-fed animal, and then there's more of a, you know, what people would call a feedlot corn-fed animal, where they're fattened up more on a starchy, like a corn. We're kind of someplace in the middle, you know, so we get a lot of grass-fed, but they don't get a lot of starch, so they end up with a marbling and a flavor that is closer to a corn-fed animal than it would be a grass-fed, you know. Grass-fed would be leaner, a little more gamier. But yes, it definitely does affect the taste. In my opinion, it's better, but I guess I'm a biased <laughs> Well, I'm very curious, I must say. We'll have to figure out a way to get some of that to me. Yeah, and my sure. husband will expertly grill it because <laughs> that's his master chef level was nice. has been attained in the outdoor cooking world. Wow, nice. I do everything outside, outside nice. all the inside stuff. <laughs> So let's talk for a minute about what you have done and, well, my relative local area here with United Way of Monterey County. I'd like to know a little bit more about yeah, that. Yeah, so that was an interesting one. So originally that was a pilot program. It was actually sponsored by Cisco. And Cisco had... Cisco meaning the, the um, tech company? The tech or company. Yeah, not, yeah, there's a food company, a food distribution company called Cisco too. But we actually competed for, it's called a thousand people out of poverty was the pilot program. And the goal there was to be able to manage indigent care across services. So there were people that, you know, there are organizations that provide food banks, and then there's job training, and then there's shelter, and then there's clothing, and those types of services, and then there's mental health. And each one of those services were kind of disparaging and disconnected from the other. And so what they wanted to do was come up with a way to make sure that that care could go across so that when you get into the system you can manage a person's care across agencies the challenge in that of course is distribution of data that a lot of times indigent care doesn't have you know they don't have an address they don't have a place to send stuff they don't have a phone number and so how do you manage those things so we put in a bid 
you know, more against traditional technologies. We're more database centric and we took a different approach. We said, you know what, we're an IoT company, but let's not just think about connecting things. What if we connected everything, right? The idea that a person is just another thing, if I may be so <laughs> bold, that sends messages and receives messages and needs logic, if you will, put on it. So what we did in each of these individual health systems or providers, we said, what if we just treated those as a connected device? And they're not sending us all the data. Like, I don't want to come in and get all your data and create this big behemoth, you know, a meta application of applications. I just want <laughs> information. Like, who visited you? Okay. Rob came in and he got some food today. Great. And I talked to him and he may need some referrals to some shelter. Okay, well, that comes back. And now because the messages acts in real time and we treat it like it's a real time interaction, we can immediately then send a message to the shelter and say, Rob needs some shelter. He's over here at this location right now and he needs to get to there. And he's on his way. Okay, well, we'll expect him or we'll look for him or maybe we'll have to go get him. And then from there, I get shelter and maybe I get a little more safety. And I think Rob needs some job training. Okay, well, we'll now give him some job training. And now someone can manage Rob in his journey out of poverty across all agencies and across all these things. And so that was really the goal. United Way took that to the next level. It was very successful. And they said, let's do that with not just this area, but let's roll it out to other areas in Monterey and let's put other agencies in there. And let's manage and create these interactions between the different charities and different nonprofits and the different systems or agencies out there, allow them to communicate across any individual management system or computer system or whatnot, and give them something that's kind of above that. So I'm seeing that in this sort of situation, you could better track resources. You could more effectively determine who needed help and when. But it also sounds like there could be a risk and all of that information being in one spot, like that the individual might be worried that it could be used in a nefarious way mm -hmm. against them. Mm -hmm. And so I know that in the homeless population, for example, there are those individuals who are already on the street because they fear that they're being tracked or mm. they don't want to go into a shelter because they fear that somebody's coming for them. And if they had knowledge of this level of detail being taken about them, maybe less likely even to go forward with some of the help that they might need. So I wonder what your thoughts are about that and how we might work to mitigate some of the concerns that people might have. So the difference between a meta application of an application of applications would be exactly what you're talking about. We would be mm -hmm. collecting data and analyzing that data and in attempting to act upon it and say, okay, I don't know. We now got to go get this person because we know that they're going to do that. Ours is, and the difference is, we are what we call an event-driven application. So in other words, I send a message and I send a message that I am here and I need to be picked up for, and think of it like Uber. I send a message, mm -hmm. I consciously, intentionally send a message and ask Uber to come get me. Somebody on the other side of that receives that message and goes, you know what? I happen to be going that way. <laughs> and if you're willing to exchange some dollars for my time and this and that, then we will have a connection and we will go and off we go. Now, at the end of the day, can Uber keep that data and do it? Yes. But what we have done in that is we don't act as the 
analysis or the application. Our job is to provide that connection. So ours is really anonymous, autonomous data moving back and forth. It exists for an event, for a transaction. Okay. And then well, once it helps that, me understand. Yeah, once that event, once that transaction's done, it goes into whatever system that they have. And so everybody maintains their autonomy like it does today. Sounds good to me. Now, I would like to know a little bit more about how you see this type of technology making our lives easier as time goes on and also how it might connect with and touch on our management of environmental issues from water usage to heck even the inputs that we put into our gardens and lawns i'm just wondering what you think the applications could be of this sort of technology in our daily lives well you hit upon one that is near and dear to my heart as a rancher and i guess as a human being water is like the number one thing that we need I live in central Oregon in a high desert climate. So I actually ranch and farm in the middle of a desert. So if you don't have water in the middle of a desert, you're in, you know, it's a problem. This year and last year have been really dry years for much of the Western United States and even down into the Southwest. And so we're going through a drought. So as an example, normally on my ranch, I will start growing crops. I start growing hay April 15th and then end and finish October 15th. Well, this year and last year, I was able to start April 15th, but I was done and I had to finish by July 1st. So and that was I, just because of water. It right? had no water, yeah. So they turned the water off. And then there's competing resources for water. And this is why a bale of hay is so much more expensive. It is something like two to three times what it was. Exactly. Hay this year is going to be, you know, if you have animals or horses and those kinds of things, it's going to be three or four times you know, more expensive because you just can't grow the crops. There's just not enough there. And the notion that there's, and what that really translates to, it means that there's not enough water flowing off of the mountains and coming down the river to, in order to get to the place where food is being grown. If you travel through central California to the San Joaquin Valley, you know, those guys down there, you'll see them all the time. Water grows food and mm -hmm. you need water to grow food for farmers. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not that water, in my opinion, there's no less water on the planet now than there ever has been. It's not like we're leaking water into space. Our sea levels are rising. Our sea levels are rising, but the water's mm -hmm. coming from other places, right? Mm -hmm. It's ice that is melting. And so mm -hmm. it's water is transforming into different areas and we have to manage that process. And the only way to manage something, you can't manage something if you can't measure it. And so managing not just you know, groundwater and ice caps and ocean water and surface water. He demands that all as a system. So one of our customers is the USGS, United States Geological Services. And they have started using our this ability to ingest large amounts of data and to, you know, track everything around rivers and streams to be able to manage, you know, to give a real-time reading as to what's coming down the Colorado River. And what that Colorado River, if water's coming down the Colorado River up in Colorado, it affects the rancher down in Southern Texas, because that's where he's getting it. And in well, Southern it California, because yeah. that's where they're getting it. Mm -hmm. And being able to manage not that, you know, and let's take it up another level. Let's manage the snowpack because the snowpack is what's coming down and create the Colorado River. So all of this is connected. Our entire system, our entire world is one cause and effect after the other but we see it as my river here in oregon or my faucet in 
Southern California or my pond in Southern Texas. And that has to you know, get out and look at that at a larger thing. And technology, our ability to start managing and measuring snowpack and groundwater and surface water and managing that water as a one whole system, I think will allow and could very easily solve this water management problem. You look back at the years of, you know, used to be electricity. Electricity back in the turn of the century, if you wanted to have a factory that had electrical devices, you had a power plant sitting outside your factory, right? You had a, an engine, a windmill or something that generated power so you could run it. Well, eventually we decided, well, that's silly. Why don't we just, you know, create power and put it into a grid and then would manage a grid. And that's really where we need to get water. Water is a distribution problem, I think, not, a, not necessarily a supply problem. Well, I know that I've spent a fair amount of time on ranches myself, having grew up on a small family farm, so to speak, in Southern Oregon, but then also having spent time on large horse farms working to train horses and, you know, call it break colts, start colts, right? <laughs> Ultimately, they even are affected because they'll dictate or the government is dictating now when, you know, you can use water, when you can have flood style irrigation. Mm -hmm. And that impacts grass. That also impacts even those that have pasture where they're grazing their animals. And so they could be in meat production or minding horses and rely on those irrigation days to keep the food supply for their animals. Yeah. So I wonder if you have also explored some of the regenerative farming practices on your own farm that can help you sequester more carbon in the soil, but also hold more water in the land itself? So we do quite, I don't know, coincidentally, we use the beer for that too. <laughs> so another byproduct of the beer making process is a wastewater that comes up. So there's two things. There's mash that we actually feed the cattle, but then there's mm -hmm. a wastewater that comes that's used out of that. When we spread that, we take and that comes out and we spread that all over our fields. It's high in nitrogen, but it also makes the soil, and that nitrogen actually makes the soil more dense. So anything that, you know, when we come to springtime, it takes less water for us to generate a pasture than it would before because of the density of the ground, the nutrients that we get more natural nutrient in the fall. Well, and the, the it sounds like the grasses you grow love the nitrogen-rich soil, oh, right? They, yeah, yeah. We obviously tailor our grasses as such. So I think there are those practices there. Are a lot of the guys now are starting to change their crops out to be more water tolerant crops, you know, triticale, crested wheat, those kinds of things where you're doing dry land crops so that they don't require as much. In some of these new crops, in fact, the years that we put in hemp and doing uses a drip irrigation system instead of a more of a sprinkler stuff, and it's a very specific, it actually, we could produce more acres of hemp with the amount of water that we had than we could produce a pasture. You know, so mm -hmm. other types of crops that we could do that. And then our cattle in terms of composting and managing the lots and the waste of the cattle, being able to spread that out across unproductive land that now makes it productive too. Mm -hmm. Again, the biggest problem that we face is water law. So if we have 100 acres of water, we are allowed to grow 100 acres of X, whatever it is. Even if I got really efficient at my use and I could produce and I could grow 120 acres, I'm not allowed to by law to even mm. get more efficient at that. And consequently, if I don't get my 100 acres and I only have enough to do 80 acres, 
I will lose 100 acres, 20 acres of water that I was not given because I didn't use it. <laughs> and so, yeah, and then water, getting it back, what do yeah. you do to get it back? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Wow. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground in this interview thus far, and I know we could keep diving into other subjects that connect to this Internet of Things, because guess what? We're all connected <laughs> at this point. Technology yeah. continues to grow in our lives Absolutely. and to help us manage all sorts of resources. So I'd just like to ask you, is there a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had? If so, you can ask and answer it. If not, I'd love to hear some parting words from you. What would you have our audience think about as we leave today's discussion? I don't know. I mean, I really enjoyed the discussion, and I think you've taken us in all the areas that are, are pertinent. And I guess the one thing that I would say, and I get this a lot to come back to me, says, is I think a lot of times technologists and ranchers, both of us get vilified for different reasons. One of us is creating Big Brother the other was is destroying the planet. And I would say find a local farmer and befriend them a little bit and learn a little bit. And I invite you to come out to the ranch and we do tours here all the time and kind of show people. But don't be afraid of either one of them. You know, I think technology has its place. Anything obviously can be used for good or not. And technology has a lot of benefits that we experience in our daily life. And I think it's going to continue to do that. It's going to shape our world and it will in a very positive way. Things like telemedicine that we're seeing now. And but the same thing with your local farmer. I know it's often more difficult to talk to your local farmer, but the problem with the local farmers is they became farmers because they weren't good at public relations. There's a reason they <laughs> become farmers, right? But they are a very kind and gentle and loving group of people. But you yeah, reach out to those local guys and, and help support them because I think if that relationship, that connection, if you will, between the local farmer and the local consumer really can start to see big changes in how we work as an economy and as a society. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. The reality is there's a human face to those local farmers in your area. And I've always been somebody who shares with my community, you know, if you can shop local, Go to your farmer's market. Guess right. what? If you have a local rancher there that sells meat locally, they are probably there with a stand too. Yeah. We have examples here that are farming for lamb, for cattle, for seafood. They're here and they're offering their wares in the local environment. There's even a chicken farmer who has pictures of their individual chickens up in That's their booth to show you the personal face to the flock that they have. <laughs> and one of the things that I love about that particular farmer is even though they haven't gone through the process of becoming organic certified, because there's an extra cost to all of these things, yeah. and sometimes they just can't make the margin for it, they're showing you the personal side of their mm -hmm. flock and all of the things that they're doing differently to care for them that you might not have even from an organically farmed egg farmer. Yeah. So I love that. Now, I wanted to direct people specifically to your website, thinglogics.com. That is T-H-I-N-G-L-O-G-I-X.com. Okay. Okay. I will include links with show notes, but how do they find out about your farm specifically if they're interested in learning more? Yeah, the website for the ranch is barleybeef.com barleybeef.com. Yep. Yeah, I didn't have that in your guest intake form. I was like, wait, what was that again? I know <laughs> I wrote it down, but then I couldn't find it. So. And that'll that'll Great. give you all the information about, you know, kind of our practices and what we do and, you know, how we then, and if we sell, we mainly focus locally, but I'm also, I'll see if I can get some beef down to you next time in the, I'm down there because I uh, would love for you to try it. Well, I'd love that. 
Okay. So thank you so much for joining me today. This has been awesome. Thanks, Green. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for joining us on this journey today for a discussion that meandered a bit through the internet of technology, the internet of things, and into real applications that you might not have thought of before. Hey, we got to know a rancher here who has become a technologist of sorts and really understand how this can even impact our usage of water. Technology isn't the enemy and neither is your rancher. Get to know who you're buying your products from and don't be afraid of the things that technology can add. Ultimately, it will help us manage our resources as time goes on, which is critically important, especially as those ice caps melt and we get less water on the annual basis. Now, if you want to find out more, you can always come to caremorebebetter.com. That is my website. We have complete show notes there, including transcripts and even direct links to each item we discussed today, including those earlier episodes of the podcast, including my interview with the amazing Mo Gaudet, who was the chief business officer for Google X. Incredible interview with an incredible man, and he really helped you to understand AI and why we should not necessarily be afraid of it because it can be our friend too. Thank you all for joining us today. This has been my pleasure to host this show. Please join me in welcoming Rob Rastovich into your community. Give him a follow on social channels and let's see what he's up to next. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community because together we can care more and we can be better. We can even regenerate Earth. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 